there are some things I think, especially I think interrelational and cultural, because I think a lot of it's sort of clumped together, especially if you're in a multicultural country like Australia. I think there comes a point where I just really don't understand, and I really don't get it. I think what I've learned is to try and just still be okay with that. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The Chinese New Year ended a little over a week ago. At home, we ate the traditional tangyuan, these silky little balls of glutinous rice filled with peanuts or sweet red bean paste. Years ago, I knew that I'd been in Taiwan for long enough to have a change of perspective when on a summer day, a friend and I shared a dessert of red beans with shaved ice drizzled with a bit of sweetened condensed milk. And I surprised myself with thinking, hmm, this is delicious. There are moments when a season slides from one to the other and you know the difference in your bones. The morning after the full moon that signaled the end of the Chinese New Year, the grass has tinges of green that it didn't have yesterday. The morning light has lost its winter silver cast, and instead it pours a more golden light into the backyard. There's little snowdrop plants with delicate little white drooping flowers that have appeared under the leafless plum trees. Seasons shift in small, unmistakable ways. We see it in nature. We see it in the way our patients change, in those moments when they are not yet where they want to be, but they recognize they no longer are where they began. There is movement, unfoldment, perhaps a bit of surprise, and the recognition that things take time, that we live into and out of seasons of life. We might even grieve something we're happy to get rid of, loss, after all, is still loss. One thing we can be assured of in this life is that everything that has been given will also be taken away. Love and grief, they're inseparable. Hate and connection are as linked as the root and the crown of a tree. This yin-yang world of unity encompasses opposites that leaves us with a constant supply of riddles and koans. Seasons do flow one into the other, as do the seasons within ourselves as we cycle through the phases of emergence, growth, decline, and disintegration. Always something is ending as the new arises. There is stillness in the slack tide as the tidal forces turn their great cycles of flow, just like that pause between the inhale and the exhale, the thought and the action, the moment of unity encompassing the arguments of polarity. Look outside your window. Do you see signs of the change in the season? Look inside your heart. Do you find yourself leaning on the unity or the conflict of polarity in the Tian Di Ren, the heaven-earth person embodiment of this moment? No is a word that carries a lot of power. It is definitive. It's boundary setting and powerfully determines the shape of a relationship. No lets you know where someone else ends and you begin. It's a word and beyond that, a stance that all practitioners need to learn to say so as we can be trustworthy to our patients. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with Elisa Yip on the importance being able to say no, and how that brings a balance to our lives and 
Why, to be reliable and ethical practitioners, we need to be comfortable saying this word. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code 
Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Our yeses are not reliable if we cannot also say no. Let's get into this conversation with Elisa on the power of saying no. Elisa Yip, welcome to Geological. Thanks. Lovely to be here. Delighted to have you. We got connected up because you sent me some emails. We started having this email conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Actually, I was quite surprised at myself. I'm usually not that I grab onto an idea and... I fire away with it, but I felt very strongly about it. I very felt strongly about the idea, um, the very idea of the word no, not only in one's life, but definitely in clinical practice because it certainly plays out very differently. And it just seemed very strange to me. There's never really a conversation about it, a serious conversation about it in – formal education or um, I would say even in um, seminars and workshops, which considering it's a really huge ethical and I'd say moral, them not necessarily being the same thing in anybody's lives, not only as a clinician. So that's an interesting thing that you just said. No is an important aspect, of course, of our work, but there's also moral and ethical implications. What are you thinking about that? Yeah, and that's the thing. Before I practiced uh, Chinese medicine, I, I was actually, I'm actually trained as a scientist. And, and I got interested in the background of science. So I, I went right up to, right back to Greek philosophy. And that's really important. It's interesting to, to, to know the building blocks towards what a lot of our practice, a lot of our education is based on and the challenge of the ethics and moral in life, which of course it is, would be in medicine because medicine was developed in, as we know it today, based on those foundations. And Chinese medicine also is too. Our, our very principles are very much mired in the ethics and the morality of how we, I think the, translation of a righteous person, an upright person, upright character. And if that underpinning is not really understood or deeply practiced, um, I would say it affects the decision-making of everything in clinical practice. I mean, diagnosis is a decision. It's a type of decision. Um, But it's, it's you know, ethics and morals is is a very difficult thing in itself to define and understand, no matter if it's Western philosophy or Chinese philosophy. I really appreciate your point about how our medicine also deeply rooted in a particular philosophy. I think many of us were drawn to this because of some kind of uh, affinity, I guess you could say, for the oriental philosophies and that, and that the medicine is a sort of applied philosophy. It's like a way that you could take the, these philosophical considerations and ways of thinking of living and do something with it. That's very helpful and very practical. You used the term of the upright person that there, that this is very much at the core, mm. the, uh, 
the, the genren, as mm, I believe mm-hmm. in Chinese. Yes, yes. It's, and, and the thing is, in reflection of not necessarily diver, uh, divergence, because this is, I think, the kernel of being a clinician, you know, there are days where you realise um, this is not sunshine and rainbows. You, to, to last as a practitioner, to make the conscious choice, this is not only going to be a career, it's going to be my life. Integrating it as part of something that is that has longevity, that being a cultivation principle, but also uh, I think I love Seth Godin's. Um, I think it's called it's the Tipping Point. I love everything that he writes. Oh my god! I, how many books has he written? Like twenty something? Yes, yes, and they're all brilliant. Yes. And I recently, actually, this is a divergence, but a worthwhile one. He's someone interviewed him about how he got to his point, and he went through I think hundreds of rejections of his book and his work before he hit. He hit, I guess, he's not his tipping point, but things that worked. You think he's just successful through his whole life? He's so prolific, and and I think that's why there's such depth in such a small book called The Tipping Point because it makes you face. Am I really going to continue what I choose as the rest of my life? Because it takes your life. And clinical practice, if there's no drive um, uh, to beyond the practice, beyond being in service, I think what you're left with is the, um, I think, the the philosophy of it, the philosophy that's it's a type of life and that's the life you choose to follow and how that ties in with no because don't want to spin off too far off left of field. Your life comes down to decisions of yes and no and the tipping mm-hmm. point is saying, no, I'm not continuing this life as a clinician. So I would never say the longevity of your practice is based on this the yin and yang of is it a no or is it a yes? And the tipping point is, you know, I guess the the point where you face these two major choices in your life. I think we face these kinds of tipping points and these kinds of choices all the time. I know that I faced one when I was first thinking about pursuing Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes. Do I want to let go of this computer career that I've had that's been, you know, lucrative, not wildly lucrative, but, you know, nice middle class life lucrative. Mm. Still, certainly work for as long as I want to, you know, do the work, you know, high tech is, is something that's here to stay. Yeah, there was a tipping point there. And I think people reach tipping points while they're in school. Is this really for me? Is this not for me? And then once you get into practice and you find out what it's really like when you're standing on your own two feet doing the work, and it's not a supervisor to please with with diagnosis, but, but a patient to help. I think these questions come up all the time, especially in the first five years of practice. Is this for me? Or what kind of me is it that's going to be able to do this practice? What in me needs to change? What needs to be brought forth? And and what might need to be left behind to continue doing the work? I loved what you said about it's not just a career, but it is our life. Mm. Mm. And what you said before um, makes me think, while we're going through this process and you know, our own wavelength of tipping points and yes and no choices, 
we're also constantly with another human being. We're with a patient who's going through their different tipping points and, um, you know, um, are we are we going to be tangoing with the same uh, yes and no? This is this what is it? There's three ultimate com- um, permutations. Um, we're saying no, and they're saying no, and you know that's hopefully won't be that many situations, but I, I have had them. Um, and 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 a yes and a no, which is a mature compromise of um, you know, for example, I don't agree with. A continuation of treatment and the patient says, no, I, I wish to continue, that can be a challenging conversation because we may know what's best for a patient, but they don't see it in the same way. Um, and a yes, yes is always the ideal, but a no, no is, is uh, an example of probably the reason and the worthwhileness, if there's such a word. Sometimes I like to make up words. Um, if Shakespeare is allowed to do that, I, I, I say I, I should be able to uh, too. Um, of, of really exploring the topic of no in clinical practice. So in terms of working with a patient and you don't think they're getting better and they don't think they're getting better, it's pretty easy to come to, do we continue? No. No, we both agree no know and what might be helpful for you. I mean, it's nice to send people off with with some kind of a referral where they might be able to get the help that they need. I'll add to that the um, a situation that actually happened where it, it on the surface it was that. It was understood that we need to refer you on. But the little thing of human relationships and how mm-hmm. we feel about them can actually get in the way of all that. Like I've had, and this, this speaks of professionalism, what, what gets achieved beyond the practicalities of the patient-practitioner engagement is a human bond, a human relationship. And I've certainly had probably one of the most challenging, because I feel very strongly about appropriate referring, is they just like you. They, they, they like the relationship and they're really challenged and scared of moving on because they may not like the next person or most importantly trust, which is the relationship anchor. And it can be pretty difficult to, um, to actually express this is really the best course of action and the best for your health because they want to hold on to the connection, but it's inappropriate in terms of a professional and a clinical reasoning. Yes, I think that is one of the more challenging moments in our clinical practice. So much easier when people just cancel and don't come back. I mean, it's got its own discomfort. You know, we'd like to know what happened, but yes, to be able to really go into that relationship and speak to the relationship is, uh, I think it's just time in the boat to some degree. It's just enough time sitting with people and, and enough experience coming up to those moments where your gut kind of clenches a bit because you know that you need to have a certain kind of conversation and you may not be sure how to do it yet. Yes. But I think that's the, if there's any, we're talking about proof and evidence in a, hmm. in a relational way, not, not in a um, even medicinal or scientific way, to really know that you've uh, – 
achieve that aspect of clinical practice, of gaining trust with another human being in order to practice instead of treating it as like the run of a mill, okay, we might we might operate as robots and it's just a transference of data and then it's a plan and then it's action. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I just, from my perspective, because I went through that, I even went through that phase, I believe it wouldn't make me happy and it wouldn't make the patient happy because that's not a relationship. And if the patient is struggling to leave because they, they feel more comfortable with you, I think that's the best example, express proof that you have actually achieved a relationship. Um, ideally in a professional way, it's the professionalism that gives them maturity for you to let go. It's a beautiful thing, but it's still a very hard thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And one aspect that we can consider is that the treatment has reached a certain kind of success because now it's time for something else. It's time for one season to end, another season to begin. I think this is why sometimes acupuncture treatments themselves can be so powerful and so helpful at the change of a season. Because when you just think about nature, okay, there's a turn happening. As you and I are having this conversation, we're coming up close to the Chinese New Year. This will air after the New Year, but we're coming up to it. It's the dead of winter here in the Northern Hemisphere. The Chinese call it the spring festival. It's like spring festival, there's snow outside. The spring is still slumbering, but it but we know it's coming. And and when it actually does arrive, there's still all that inertia from winter. Right? I mean, it's phase changes that have to occur at a certain point. And I think that's true in relationships as well. I think we can take that metaphor of seasons in the relationship in and it works really well. And if we remember that, oh, right, we're in a new season, you have to do what's appropriate for the season. Mm. I, I I would love if Chinese medicine education would actually have a class tying in human relationships based on seasons then. That sounds like something that I would have liked to learn. I knew you would be leading up to that question. I'm the first one to to suggest an idea. Yeah, maybe I will. I will I will note it down. Sometimes I have found there's things I see in the world and I think this needs to get done. Somebody should do this. How come no one's doing this? How come nobody sees this? Oh, maybe this is mine. Sometimes. Hey, I want to come back. I want to circle back for just a moment to something from the beginning of the conversation that you had this background in science? Yes. My first degree was in biomedical science. Fantastic. Yep. Great. And the major was? Neuroscience. I had to think about that for some reason because I'm in the middle of deciding my specialty in, in Chinese medicine. I still love general practice, but just reflecting on what I've done. So technique on paper, it's neuroscience, but um, the I think I only chose that because there's a bit of a funny story behind that. I was only interested in anatomy and wasn't interested in anything else in my first degree. And I literally did an anatomy, all anatomy subjects. And you had to do neuroscience in order to dissect the brain. So I did, a, and there was no major in anatomy. But it gave me a very, very good appreciation of the human body. 
fantastic. But the thing that really got my attention is you said that it took you back to some of the great philosophical classics. Yes, yes. And, and I think that gets lost many times in our Chinese medicine, I'm using air quotes here, alternative community, because mm-hmm. we often look at Western science, which I think is one of the most fantastic mm. mind tools ever developed, hands down, for discerning reality and slicing away what you think is true, but it's not, right? It's like a delusion-destroying tool. Mm. The scientific method is amazing. Yeah. Also, just, just like if you like order, and the point of, for me, organization is, is being also being clear and focused, but also saving time, it's also really good for that too. I mean, that's the way I see how the models it, it suggests for you to think through something. Can you give me an example of that? Um, I'm a big fan of Ozum's Razor. For people that are not familiar with that, um, what is that? I think it, it's Ozum. Ozum was his surname, William, William Ozum. And, and a lot of people know about it more from its choose the most simple, direct, simple and direct solution, which, which gives me the feel of um, one of the decision-making models and tools in Chinese medicine is yin and yang. And you come full circle, you go, well, it's too simplistic. And then you clinically practice and you realize, ha, huh, it underpins every single t- type of decision. It's the binary decision-making method. But in order to even appreciate the fact that it can just come down to yin and yang and yes or no, um, it's you got, you got to have an appreciation of something direct. I think you got to make a choice of I'm not gonna I'm not gonna meander, which tends to be my tendency, um, meander through ten thousand million choices. And sometimes in that moment, you, you really have to make a decision. You have to move your backside. And Ozan's razor is probably a foundational influence of how I uh, diagnose. And I actually recently, recent as in like during COVID-19, 2020 when I had time, um, I reviewed, I went back to his story, William Ozum, and he's actually a really, really down-to-earth clinician. He's actually, the way he practiced sounded really Chinese med-like. Maybe the tools and applications were not herbs and needles and cupping on gua sha, but his philosophy and his outlook of how you practice medicine was very um, uh, when you clinically decide this is what you do and this is what really happens in clinical practice. And it makes me think of how medicine was viewed during Hippocrates' time, how, how it started observation and developed their models and theories. Um, but also Chinese medicine, because it's very well known that, you know, you have the uh, academic physicians like Sun Simao, but he also very highly uh, admired and, re- and embraced cultural medicine, folk medicine, because he liked what works. So I would associate Sun Simao with William Ozum, how he actually practiced. And he's well known for his idea of choose the most obvious and simple and direct thing, I guess, don't waffle around in clinical practice. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. 
a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. When I was first studying medicine, I can remember a teacher mm -hmm. telling us that we just have to come down on the side of a decision and then go at that thing with everything you've got. Mm, and how hard is that, actually? Yeah, because if you're right, okay, look at me, I'm smart. If you're wrong, oh, God, am I right? What's going to happen? And I, I mean, I don't know if you go with it with, let me rephrase that. It's not that you go with it with everything you've got, but you go with it in a way that's direct enough that you're sending one clear signal to the body so that the response that you get back will be clear. If you do one strong thing and a couple side things, maybe just because I want to cover my bases, any information you get back from the body will be muddy. It's impossible to have a clear understanding of what that treatment did if it's not simple, focused, and direct. And you can test something out, you know, by maybe giving the body a little push, but you need to make sure that it's just one push and it's in one direction. And I remember hearing that and thinking, yes, that's right. That makes sense. And then I get in clinic and all the doubts come up about this. What about that? I want them to come back. I want them to feel like... I care, whatever. But mostly it would come down to I'm just not clear. And it really helped to be able to be okay with not being clear. But like you just said, you come down on one thing. Mm, mm. Well, now you've actually got something to stand on. Because if you treat in alignment with that, the information you get back will be trustworthy information. And that's... But there's a risk in that. Yeah, the risk is that you're wrong. And, and I would dare say there's a risk in that yes and no dynamic because I was reading in some articles specifically just to, um, just to see some different ideas. And I think it's James Clear. He's the one who wrote Atomic um, uh, Habits. And it's, a, it's sometimes a cost and benefit and there's a risk involved in, in the word no and there's a risk involved in going one way because when you say no to all other options, you are, that's the pathway to just one way first. And in clinical practice, I think the, the weight of that, the, the risk of that is that you could be wrong and it could not be the right option. And I think that's, 
it's not only a risk, but it's what makes clinical diagnosis really hard. I don't think there's any doubt um, most of the time that you want to make the right choice for a patient in making a good diagnosis and a good treatment. But ultimately, we're not miracle makers. I wasn't the last time I checked. <laughs> and there's always this risk of when you make one decision and you stick to it, you're not ensured it's going to be the right one. Across the span of a certain of your career, you could be the majority of your decisions could be quite correct. And as your experience increases, ideally it goes into another sort of level and you get more. But there, there's never a point where you'll say no or you'll say yes um, and that will lead to one decision that you're ensured that it's going to lead to a non-risk, um, happy rainbows and sunshine situation. Of course. There may be some incredibly masterful practitioners who can do that. That's not the vast majority of us. And I'm thinking about our good friend, Uncle Seth Godin at this moment, because like you were saying, he had tons of failure on the way to like figuring his stuff out mm. and coming up with the brilliance that he has and that he, and that he shares with the world. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't come to what they've got without having to hone their skill. How do you hone your skill? You see where you've been wrong and you're clear about it. So we're just talking a moment ago, there's a risk, you know, a big risk that, that we make it a decision with our diagnosis. We treat that way and we're wrong. I think the bigger risk is when we are unclear with our diagnosis. And so we don't give a clear message in the treatment because now we're just wandering around in circles. The beauty of being wrong is that you're wrong. And now you've got a new data point. You've got more information. And so as you fine tune your diagnosis, you already know what doesn't work. I, I, had, I had a teacher when I was in school, quite well known. And so acupuncturists would tend to refer to this guy if they couldn't get it figured out. And, it, and he said, well, you know, it turned out it was often quite easy to figure it out at that point because they already saw the acupuncturist that treated kidney deficiency. That didn't help. They already saw the acupuncturist who treated some sort of fluid metabolism issue, and that didn't work. So I already knew two things not to do. And, and I think this is true in our work as well. If we, if we get a clear, well, we love getting a clear yes that the treatment was right. Everybody loves that. I think being able to appreciate a clear no. I mean, actual appreciation, like, oh, cool, that didn't work. Mm, mm. And it didn't work in this way. Mm. What else does that mean? I think that's very, very helpful to us. It is. I, I actually see that as a positive. It's that saying of, it, I see anything similar as that saying is if you've been rejected, it's just the door, clo the door of no closing so it can lead you to the right yes. So if it's clinical practice, if you haven't got it right, it's simply leading you to the right path. But it's sometimes hard. In a, I'm just thinking of an example way. It's the conversation having with a patient. I've got a few examples, so I'm just going to try and pick the, the, the best one. This also happened quite recently, just shy of Christmas, and because I, uh, I work in a multi-modality clinic with uh, osteopaths. I've worked with osteopaths since the start. So 
this patient saw me yonkers ago and not for not necessarily for um, pain management. And she saw one osteopath um, had an adverse reaction, quite serious enough to, to call the clinic and didn't really complain but very upset and got referred to a senior osteopath, a craniosteopath, like very refined skills, and, and didn't feel like there was a shift. So there was still a residual feeling upset. And the director got involved, so it became quite a serious thing. And she chose to see me. And the challenge of that conversation was trying to shed not a negative, not a positive light, because it, when someone's really upset, the worst thing you can tell them is, well, everything's fine. Um, some people are okay, but when they're really, really um, volcano mode, that's the worst thing you can say in my experience. So it was a tightrope walk of, look, it's actually a good thing. It was an actual verbal example of um, laying it out. It's a good thing of, I didn't say it's a good thing. It's useful to go, you've been through this treatment and you've been through that. Um, and I was lucky, I, I know in depth, the different types of osteopathic practice. These two treatments give extraordinary information to help get us to what care you actually need and I said this at the start of the treatment and then I treated her interestingly by the time we worked out what was happening uh, it tied back with my first explanation because what she actually had was ultimately a Shanghan uh, a light Shanghan presentation and that was an organic effect affecting her tissues and muscles to give her the pain and discomfort. And it's very much not within the paradigm of osteopathy. So you can't ask them to work with something that's totally outside of their um, thinking box. And luckily the patient really took that on. When that was explained to her, she was very you know understanding about that. And it was a beautiful thing. I thought it was a beautiful thing of we got the patient well, but we I, I think we cleared any negative mist. I don't know why I'm visualising as mist. We cleared any negative vibe mist of any ill will she would have had for the prior two practitioners because, yes, the um, mistakes or choices that didn't work may have been helpful practically, but in a human relational way, it upsets people. Some people just, you know, I'm I'm really angry that you made me worse or you didn't give me relief for my suffering. But the actual the explanation to the patient, this is why it's so, and we can't demand something of someone um, when they truly don't know and it truly is not suitable from their angle. And that sounds like the end of the nice end of the story, but that's not the true beautiful end. The true beautiful end is a couple of weeks later, the very first osteopath who treated her, which he he was the most concerned because he was the one who did the treatment and gave her like the start of the adverse reaction, she actually went back to him and was happy to have, she usually sees the osteos for the musculoskeletal things. Um, and I thought that is the truly best ending to a story because 
yeah, if the trust wasn't there anymore, you know, there's lots of choices of osteopaths too. She wouldn't go back to to him, and it's not, and certainly not about me. It's that that's what I liked about it. It's it's not about a single type of even treatment. It goes beyond that. It's it's the most best and appropriate care. The best and appropriate care, and I know, I think, it, and I think it's very human that we often make it about ourselves, even when it isn't. It's like I fixed their back pain. It's like no, you didn't. Mm. <laughs> You that was the help. green days. <laughs> Why isn't yeah. people seeing me? Why isn't people, you know, booking, booking yes. with me? All right. In the early days of my practice, I did this. I'm like so embarrassed at this point where people would come in. Oh, I went to go see the, I don't know, chiropractor or the author or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, those guys don't know what they're doing. It's like, what? That was horrible on my part. You know, it's like, I'm going to collude with my patient. You know, you don't like this person. It's like, yeah, you shouldn't like him. Good thing you're here with me. Hate to admit that I did it, but that's like part of the learning process early on of don't do things like that. Mm, but it's you know, very human too. Outcome, it's very human. I think it's very human and it's part of becoming, I don't know if we ever become a genren, but we can certainly put our feet on the path of becoming a genren. doesn't mean you're going to get there, but it's not a bad path to put your feet on. But it's part of putting your feet on that path to be like, okay, that other person did it the best they could for you. Of course they did the best they could for you. And these things happen. Okay, this, again, we're back to, okay, so here's some useful information. Let's see if we can use that. One of my practices for the past few years, and I fail at this almost every single day, but one of my practices is not to use the word good or bad in my clinic. Oh, my back pain's gone. Oh, that's good. Or, you know, my stomach pain is worse. Oh, that's too bad. Leave out the good and bad. And just take in as like, okay, so what is this thing that's happening? And instead of looking at a, at a treatment as being like, oh, that was a good treatment or that was a bad treatment. Well, how was that treatment useful? How was that treatment not useful? It makes it very challenging, I find, to actually write a, a medical record because if you write, if the patient's response is good or bad, it's not actually not enough information. And it's definitely not enough information to track, to monitor progress. But I actually find it really hard sometimes. I think especially with my elderly patients, it's the, more often than not, I find when they say, oh, it's good or it's bad, it's, it's, a, vul it, it's a defense for vulnerability. I mean, this is just my impression because um, I'm not just targeting an age range. It tends to show up because I find like I've got to be a bit more careful and diplomatic when I tease out. So what do you mean and could you let me know more what you mean by good and what you mean by bad? And usually with most patients, they'll go, oh, okay, and they'll add to the detail. But with elderly people, I, I do find that there's sometimes this wall that's why, why do you want more information? Why, why do you want more from me? What, what are you going to do with that information? And I just wonder if it's a, it's a generational cultural thing, like from a different time. And I'm thinking more the really 
uh, post-World War, especially depression times of there's a mentality of not necessarily suspicion, but you just got to be careful, mindful of what you say as a as as a product of a certain social cultural time. And, and for the part of the clinician, it pays to go, um, what sort of sensitivity am I going to, or how, how am I going to see this case and how am I going to articulate it to this particular patient? Because it's, it's usually quite straightforward if, oh, okay, I'm going to give more detail. Sometimes I find myself as the patient going, oh, yeah, it's okay. I tend to not use a good or bad, but okay. <laughs> okay is just as bad if we're going to use those terms. And it tells nothing. But definitely I find where patients are a bit not, not – don't feel more comfortable to trust, will be a bit relu- uh, reluctant to share detail beyond a good and a bad. I think that is absolutely in there to some degree. And that's just any patient practitioner if the relationship hasn't been established to a certain point. I've got two points I want to make with what you just said. And one is speaking across generations. I think you put your finger on something there, and I think it's trickier. I think it's a lot trickier than we often think it is especially if we consider ourselves good communicators and we're like somewhere in a middle generation where we can talk to people younger and talk to people older. But I've noticed you were talking about that like post-World War II generation, which is the generation of my parents. And one of the things that I've noticed about that generation is they have a deep respect for authority. They really do. I mean, in the 60s. So for me, authority was like, oh, authority, yeah, screw you. That was my relationship to authority. But that wasn't their experience. Their experience was authority, even if you don't agree with it, it's to be respected or maybe to be feared and watched out for, depending on what side you were on. And I'm not going to label that good or bad or even helpful or not helpful. It's just certain generations just have certain things going on. And and it's just their milieu. It's just their framework for how they see reality. That's not going to change. It's up to us to work with that. So there's that. And then the other point that I, that I wanted to make is I think they're very, I think I might have just said it a moment ago, there are generationally agreed upon sort of truths about how the world is. And if you're talking to someone within your generation, you kind of get where they're coming from. But talking across generations, I think it can get tricky very quickly. I used to bemoan that. When I, when I uh, encountered patients that were very much like my parents that came from that generation, I used to go, you know, at the end of at the end of workday, go, do they all go to some of the same school and they learn the same thing? Which is very, very in line with there are universal truths to generations because it almost seems like there's there's so much synchrony in in how information's how information is taken in and how it's processed and even just you know some of the uh, what, what I find 
how you relate to another human being. That's the thing. That's what I'm one interested in. And two, I find really consistent if they're within a generation or very, very different when they're across a different generation. I think, for example, which I'm trying to get, wrap my head around the, there's a Y generation, but the one that comes after it, I think it's the I, I generation, the one that's been talked about apparently recently and, and, it's so featured around digital social media, like how that impacts our relationships, which I find really fascinating because I remember the days where we not only didn't have internet, but um, I, I distinctly remember when the first sort of mobile phones came out, there was this great scepticism, oh, we're never going to be dependent on mobile phones. It's going to be a fad and you know, we're going to go back to what, what works for us. But then iPhone came. So it's it's just it's communication, it's views and I think as a practitioner, especially if you're in general practice, you really have to roll with it sometimes, regardless if you wrap your head around it or not. I think you do have to roll with it. You really do. And I mean it took me a while to crack this one, which is so I'm of the generation where when we wanted to talk to our friends on the phone. We called them up. If they were available, they'd answer the phone. If they weren't available, nobody answered the phone. Then answer machines came along. Oh, then you just leave a message and they call you back. That's my experience of using a phone. These days, younger people don't use phones for talking. They don't want to talk on the phone. They won't talk on the phone. They'll text, they'll email, they'll Instagram. I mean, they'll do everything else. But me, because of the generation that I'm in and because of the habit that I have, my quickest, easiest way to communicate, I want to talk to you with my voice. And so, so now here I am in clinic with people that are of the text me, don't talk to me, but we're in clinic and we're having to talk. And they're having to talk. And, and sometimes I think the difficulties also come from they're just not used to talking directly to people. I could be wrong. All y'all's listening to this that are of that generation, if I'm wrong, let me know on how to fix that. But I, I wonder about that kind of a dynamic. I watched this young niece of mine who lives with us and yeah, she would rather communicate with her friends through anything except voice. And it's so bizarre to me because I was the opposite. And I, and I point this out because I think there's always things among generations, often that we're unaware of. And so it's easy for communication to go sideways because we're literally wanting, not just speaking different languages, but, but we're looking to use different channels of communication. Mm -hmm. But I think with that too is, I think coming back to ourselves, what how we can manage that. What I came to, I think I started with, well, I just need to get really good at it because that's how I can engage and operate well. Unlike, I think I realized I really need to learn touch typing at some point because that's going to be really useful. And I did actually take a workshop day and, and achieve that, but that's mechanical and direct. You can achieve that. But this human relations is what I found. You can't be good at it in some respects. There are some things I think 
especially I think interrelational and cultural because I think a lot of it's sort of clumped together, especially if you're in a multicultural country like Australia. I think there comes a point where I just really don't understand and I really don't get it. And I think what I've learned is to try and just still be okay with that because I think there's a space where I I really uh, don't get communicating through Twitter, for example, and Instagram. I have accounts, but I never use them. <laughs> so that shows how, how well I've uh, gotten good at that. I, I really don't really can't wrap myself around and, and um, continue to see how I, how I can be good at that to, uh, to improve the quality of, of my relationships and, and, and my life. And it's just a process of, that's okay. And, and that leads on to not everybody is going to be great at, um, well, not everybody's good at everything. And so, you know, I'm not going to be very well at that. And I accept that. And and find out other ways to communicate with people who use that medium, and have not so much a boundary, but a a compromise in communication. Something new, hopefully, what's existing. But if anything, new communication. Let's say the the rise of Instagram, the rise of even social media itself. Wasn't that probably someone who thought there must be a different way to communicate because I can't do something very well and I'll create something new. So I think there's that there's that important aspect of it's okay not to be okay at something. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I so appreciate that. I, I just heard you say that living in Australia as you do, which is a, a multicultural place, living in the United States where I live, which is a multicultural place. I mean, I've lived in places that were not multicultural. I've lived in Taiwan, not multicultural. I've lived in China, right? Not really multicultural. Very, very different places. You know, when you, and in some ways, much more harmonious in a way, because it's like, oh yeah, we're all alike. If, you know, enough. And then you look at something like where you live or where I live, think about the multicultural 
experiments that we're running on ourselves. And and to hear you just say, because it's multicultural, or in some cases, multi-generational, which might well be multicultural as far as I'm concerned, I grew up in a whole different world, to say that I'm not going to be that good at it. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Why? Because it's multicultural. And we've got all these little subcultures, and they're all changing in their own ways, and the language within them is changing in different ways. So you might think that you're actually speaking in a very respectful way, but you didn't get the memo that, oh, by the way, we don't say it that way anymore. We say it this way. It's making a choice. I think it ends up in the rabbit hole of, I think, criticism, having criticism in 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 the communication. But if if we're, I think it's giving ourselves the peace of we can we can approach someone and say, but you don't need to be a certain way. You don't need to speak a certain way. You don't need to think a certain way within the bounds of social morality and behaviour. Then it is okay. And anchoring that in the example, it, because we have a lot of, I think, the, the different waves of uh, big blocks of immigration is um, Greek and I, I worked in mainly Greek community in the, in one of the clinics I worked at. And then at the clinic I work at now, it's, it's, I think, more Lebanese. And then there's Italian wave and, and then there's Chinese. At the moment, it's probably more the Chinese wave. And, and, and the thing is, what I notice is about the ones that have actually immigrated. So they weren't born here. There's, there's a lot of, um, I, I go through these conversations. Does it really matter if you're not up with technology? You're not up. You, your English isn't perfect, and also the sadness of knowing you don't get to see your family in another country. You can talk to them on the phone, but you you can't humanly be there in their presence. I think these sort of things. There's it's a, a hot pot of. Um, I'm not doing perfectly in in the culture and in the place I'm doing. And at the same time, I'm torn with the homesickness of where home actually is. All these things are, I think it's a conversation that I have. And I think it's a very interesting, important conversation that, but it's okay to be that way. It comes back to it's human to mourn, mourn the bond that's been lost with being present in the place that you consider home, your heritage. But at the same time, just really confused and really not feeling you, you, you fit in, in, in a society that is new and different to you, which I think that the, the main points with a multi, multicultural society, that it's a good thing and a good thing and a bad thing to put it, to use those words that we wouldn't say we're not going to use again. Um, but I think it's it's a really interesting thing. I think people show sides of themselves and so show nuances and depths in that situation. That's um, I don't think you can really see in a in a society that's not so multicultural. That's that's just very consistent in behaviour, consistent in views and stuff. Uh, which is not a judgment, but it's you just don't see that. It's like the difference between, you know, seeing a beautiful painting and, and watching TV all day. The, um, when I hear you talk about the immigrant's experience, it shows you something of the human spirit. 
And it shows you something of the resiliency of people who have taken a huge risk to leave behind what they know for the possibility of something better. And then you also have this incredible thing that happens when you mix cultures together, which is you have different ways of thinking, you have different ways of behaving, you have different kinds of food, you have different kinds of habits. Some cultures hug, some won't touch each other. And, and when you bring all these different kinds of people together, and now, okay, we all got to figure out how we're going to get along with this. It can create all kinds of discord, but it can also bring phenomenal, I mean, I think about this like a, like a biologist. The most robust ecosystems are those that have the most diversity. And so when we bring the diversity of different kinds of people and behaving and thought and and all of that together, yes, there are turf and territories to work out, just like any animals in any ecosystem do that. But it's also a more robust ecosystem. And then there's also the things that different people learn. It's like, oh, they do it like that. Damn, that looks like a great idea. We're going to do it too. So there's also that. I want to um, pivot just a bit here because when we were originally talking in our in our email conversation, we're, we're talking about this thing about the importance of knowing, oh my God, we'd go for another few hours on that. We might have to even come back and talk about that again at some point. But the other thing that you brought up, and I just want to spend a little time with it, because you're not the first person that I've heard say this. And, and I think it's something that would be useful for our profession, which is, you were talking about like mentorship, like, like how people when they're, once they're out, how do you, how do you get help to keep going? I actually mentor a student. I'm not sure if I mentioned that in the email. And I think in the, at least from my point of view, my side of it, that that makes you reflect in another way, if not in a much more deeper way in how you should practice and the challenges that arise. Like it actually makes, especially when my student literally goes through the same challenges and experience that I've gone through. And it's like, like I journal too and I reflect and I journal, but when it occurs to someone else and also someone you care about in a different way, it's your student, it, it really, it's almost like chipping away at a, if, if the situation, the idea is a diamond and it's faceted, it's, mm-hmm. it's realizing that there's another facet to that diamond and it, it's really intriguing and it's the, the experience of it is almost galvanizing because you understand it in a different way. Um, for example, this is pretty serious, but, you know, it, it, it occurs for women. It's not a gender thing, but it, I've just heard consistently it, does, it can happen to, and it does, to young female graduates. And I've had this conversation when I was when I was a young female graduate with more experienced, and I think the first thing I noticed that they, they were sort of mentors, but I worked with them, that it seemed like a hush hush topic. 
like um, it the men too. It was just it almost felt like you know this is what women talk about. But I'm like, wow, this is we really need to open this up. What happens is young female graduates can be targeted. And I actually will include any healthcare practitioner because what nowadays is you have your, your photo and your biography on a website and what happens is um, you get some inappropriate behaving patients and I actually noticed the pattern. Not that something I wanted to notice but it was certainly happening. I work at one clinic and I always have – so it's my home roost and I explore different demographics so I move around in – the second clinic I work at and I noticed every time I started at a clinic in the first one or two months there tend to be some patients that were not really coming for a, a treatment that was that was for their health it was just you know um, we're going to test this practitioner out because the nature of being a healthcare practitioner is caring it's an expectation that you are going to be heard you're going to be afforded attention. And unfortunately, that does attract some unsavory characters who will take advantage of that. That doesn't sound very good, but, well, I'm taking action in this needs to also be a topic and uh, something that needs to be talked about. Because the fact of the matter is when something actually happens and it's not open enough, it does perpetuate. So it's managing as a, as a mentor, seeing... I mean, by the time I was a mentor, um, this situation, a female situation arose again. It was an inappropriately behaving uh, patient. And using this example, I, it's really, really confusing and challenging to be the most, coming back to that, ethical and moral person, ethical and moral and professional practitioner and have to not have the tools and the ways to manage something like this. And even in this situation, I'm not making a judgment because we can't truly know, well, are they really, um, really misbehaving? Are they really inappropriate? Which is there's two sides to this coin. The fact of the matter is clinicians are human and, and we could very well make a mistake and it's a wrong impression. And there's actually a lot of literature to – um, encourage practitioners, we just need to sit back, we need to realise what we're feeling if we if we believe a patient is inappropriate and reconsider what is actually happening and documenting. But I feel the literature, and I've actually read quite a bit on this, this specific subject, it, it tends to assume you the clinician is, is may not be correct, and that's true, um, and it can be, become a legal thing, so you've got to be, be careful. You you can't just say, wildly point a finger and say that this this patient isn't behaving very well. And we're also not trained behaviourally and, and psychologically. But the reality is there can be patients, well, not even patients, there can be people who are Character-wise, they are not going to be behaving appropriately. And if that is not recognised as something that can occur, then we can't manage it gracefully. So it's not about criticising and targeting. It's the same thing. It's it's for any challenging case. If it was a intellectually challenging case, it's 
not so much, oh, this is aggravating and what are we going to do about it, is how to behave and decide, decide gracefully. And if there is a patient that's acting out or acting in or acting sideways, how can we approach that, that we maintain professionalism despite that? And it's definitely coming back to it when I saw it in my own student, there's different feelings that arise because it's from, especially from, from the way I'm shaped um, in what a mentor means, that you're, you're a guide, you're a teacher. So um, I don't treat my student as a child because they're an adult and, you know, you don't treat adults as children. But I realised I got really probably more frustrated and, and angry because you're harming someone I care about. That was a different and that takes grace too. With you, with a clinician and a patient, there's a certain level of grace I think I try and achieve in, in how I engage with them. But there's also something different when you're the role of a guide, of a mentor, and you, you wish to help, but it's up to that practitioner to learn how to manage that. And they may not think of grace. They, they, well, first they have to realize this is challenging and how they're going to relate to it and how they're going to manage it. But as, as something that happens like that, that's probably the most serious example of what a practitioner can go through and what a mentor helping, a female mentor helping a female patient, uh, practitioner can go through. But I will, I will circle that up that when I was in my student clinic days, we also had this conversation in student clinic and and it wasn't a she, it was a he. He was like a, um, he was a very senior age student and his face didn't, I wouldn't say looked, even looked his age, um, definitely told you like he was older than all of us, but he was ex-army. And he did not look like he would be intimidated by anyone and he would be the one that – but he, he did actually say even um, males can also ha- have that side of the coin um, and also misunderstood too, especially when it's a male treating a female. So there's also can be assumed confusions with that sort of dynamic. Uh, but it's, it's one of those ones there – there's the possibility of – um, mistaking the situation, a very high pos- possibility from the practitioner. And then there's the possibility of ignoring something really serious and it's harmful to the practitioner too. And both ends are really, I think, really challenging to make sure that you are t- taking the middle way, that you can go home at the end of the day and go, I really believe I did right and I did the best for me. And I did the best for my patient. And if you're a mentor, that you did best for a student without telling them what to do, without saying, I know better. And um, I I think you should do X, Y, and Z. Because there's that, I, what I prize about, um, you know, that my student also understands. I, I, I prefer them to learn their own mistakes. But then there's situations where, well, you just got to get out of that because it's dangerous and you got to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but then, you know, are they going to lose 
are they going to lose the strength and the wisdom that you gain from facing adversity and perhaps falling or be successful from facing something that, you know, they, they wouldn't have in any other situation. I loved what you said about the person that you're helping to mentor. They're not a child and you can't treat them like a child. They're an adult. And they're in the process of forming and becoming and developing into the kind of practitioner that they're going to be. It is, uh, yes, to, to sit in the place of a mentor and help walk people through something that's difficult in the, in the situation that you're talking about where there's like potential sexual misconduct. Those are some pretty perilous shark-infested water. They really are. The point that you bring up that this is something, I mean, could it happen to men? Yeah, it could, but it's way less likely. What happened? Army veteran pointed out, which which made me really open up in not just sitting in one way. If anything, sometimes it's harder because if, like, for example, if um, you're he, he he pointed out, if you're a male practitioner and you really felt because it's an amazing point, especially if it's asthma and stuff, if you needed to needle CV seventeen right on in the middle of the um, sternum, um, that could, that's, I don't think there's a point that, that can, you can replace the effect of that point for breathing, for depression. I find that mm-hmm. a point really, really good for depression. But, you know, it's just a challenge to, I think for for what he said from his point of view, how are you going to explain that very well and make the patient feel safe? And you can get the reverse impression that the male practitioner is the one who's being inappropriate. But, yeah, I think it's hard for whatever your gender is and whatever range that you're on in the gender scale. Well, just the whole gender issue alone is worth a couple of few podcast discussions at this point. So in terms of... When I think of people first getting out of school, I mean, our profession is so, in some ways, it's so young here in the West. And I think about my friends that do psychotherapy, the psychotherapists. There's not a single new psychotherapist that comes out of school and doesn't do some sort of supervision work with an experienced practitioner for I don't know, 10 years, maybe more. I've got friends that have been practicing psychotherapy for 30 years and they still sometimes get supervision with with another senior practitioner because they're running into some stuff. We in our profession, we're not trained to be psychologists or therapists, and yet people will often bring to us that kind of material. I think it's very easy to get emotionally enmeshed into certain relationships with people because we're asking them about how they feel and we're asking them about very intimate aspects of their life. We're inviting them to be transparent with us emotionally. And so some people will take that and run with it. Now we're kind of swimming in waters that we're not really that well trained for. So there's that aspect of just like working through the psychological stuff that we might be over our head with, but not know we're over our head. And then it's just also the side of learning to be a Chinese medicine practitioner on our own two feet. And we don't need a teacher in the same way that we had one in school. 
need a mentor like you were just talking about. I'm not here to teach you. I'm here to help you walk through your experience so that it can be more useful to you. It's a whole different thing. We have very little setup in our profession to help people in that way. I, I will say the association I'm with, there's, um, there's positive progress with that. There's actually a mentor program that you can sign up with and there's a, it's a contract too. There's accountability and it's um, set up by someone who actually, I believe, did a PhD on mentoring and they're in charge of it. And it, I wouldn't say governs, but it oversees this process, which I think is a good step. There's some small steps in that direction that's, impo- that's important to clinical practice. But I totally agree with that. I, and I definitely had have had similar thoughts that um, this is not, you know, it's a comparison. It's It's that thing that you said before. It's when you're around different things because medicine, there's so many different types of medicines and like multicultural being in a multicultural state, we can, we can learn. It's not about what type it is, but we can learn something that's more positive and creates a better quality. And if you, if you look at the training just after the academic degree of um, Western medicine, they go through heck loads of time of not, it's not extra training. You just, that's the part of getting to point from point A to point B. You have the internship, you have remaining, is it the RM, RMO? You, you have that first year of internship and you have being a resident officer, um, clinical officer, and you have to wait and made to really decide, well, what are your talents what's good fit for not only your talents or what you actually like and that's why you go through those rotations and it's quite a couple of years before you, I, I dare say, will be let out in the wild. Um, but during all that time, you have the the support and the, I guess the, the community of nurses who are you know, so experienced and so in-depth with the relationships because of the time they spend with patients and other doctors too and I don't know why the janitor stuff comes up. Um, it shows up in sitcoms, but my brother keeps on saying that the janitor is such an important person in a staff. You, you don't realize and appreciate why they're so important. These sort of things, I think, set a, set the self-esteem is, I think, is formed differently for different things. It, it I think it forms the foundation of the self-esteem of being a practitioner in that process. And I think that certainly is missing. Um, that structure of it is missing in our, in our uh, education, which is okay. It just means that when something's young, it, when we need to be exploring um, how we're going to develop, how we're going to um, grow. I was going to say, I was asking I'd be better. It's not so about being better. There's not, it's not being not better. We're, we're not, we're not starting from a point where we're comparing with we're being better or we're not being enough. As much as I said self-esteem, it's it's about, it truly I think is about understanding where we are when it's in our point B and where our where we want to take it to point, uh, where our point A is, where we're going to take it to point B because that will um, help power the way to how we grow. 
but how we grow can also be borrowed as different tools from different people. I think what you're talking about is a process of maturity, that the profession itself is maturing over the course of years, and that, and that practitioners go through a cycle of maturation. We go through these different seasons, right? And, and at the very beginning, maybe just finding a way to power ourselves through however we can through the first few years of clinic, that's exactly the right thing. But after a certain period of time, you need to start refining what you're doing. Somehow have your experience refine you. I've heard a lot of people talk about that. That the way they practice now is not like it was when they were five years younger. It's not the way they did it maybe 15 years ago, depending on how long they've been in practice. That that there are, and again, I'm thinking of like ecosystems, or I'm thinking of like just watching human beings grow. There are these phases of maturation. I'm not call it right or wrong, but there are things, if you look at the developmental models of Piaget or Erickson uh, in the psychological world, there are just, there's different stages of things that you can expect at different cycles of life. We see this in Chinese medicine as well, the cycles of seven and eight, and those are detailed very nicely. So, so maybe there's... Maybe it's not about good or bad. It's like what's appropriate for where you are in your cycle of growth and development. So anyway, we've gone on for quite a while here. I wonder if there's anything else that you've got to say to our listeners before we wind down this delightfully long-ranging conversation. I've so appreciated this. It's it's just a delight to get on to the microphones here and noodle things over with another practitioner. I just always appreciate it so much. Same, same. No, I, I really loved it. I, I expected I like it, but it's, it's different when the experience matches that same expectation. Um, it's just really wonderful talking about relevant clinical topics, but even beyond that, I think the way I've seen how our conversation has, roll, has rolled out is that there are so many not obvious but deep topics and thoughts that shape the experience of a Chinese medicine practitioner. And it's really lovely that you have a podcast that gives voice to that. I couldn't do it without all the voices like yours. I, I sit in a very, um, I sit in a place of gratitude that I get to talk to so many practitioners who really bring their heart and mind into the work and, and are willing to share their experience. You know, most of us are just busy in our clinics. You, you never hear of us. And so I, I appreciate the deep generosity that uh, folks like you bring forward in sharing this with us. So thank you so much. A pleasure. See you, Michael. hope you enjoyed this conversation with Elisa. As practitioners, we are here to help, and it's easy to conflate yes with being helpful. But when you look at all the places our patients suffer because they can't say no, it makes it easier to realize how important it is to be able to cultivate an appropriate no. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today.
Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.